This audio presentation was pre-recorded and edited for brevity and clarity. Hello, I'm Michael Buckley with the Bright Focus Foundation. Welcome to, or welcome back, to the Bright Focus Chat. Today our topic is caregiving and low vision. We have two guests today, and they're going to give valuable perspectives and answer your questions about caregiving. Our guests today are Joanne Dillon, who's a caregiver for a family member with AMD, and Grace Whiting, who is the the, uh, president and CEO of the National Alliance for Caregiving. That's a group that Bright Focus has worked with a lot in the past and really appreciate the work that they do to help caregivers um, and make sure that that at uh, at the policy level that the work that caregivers uh, do, you know, doesn't go unnoticed and make sure it's supported. Uh, Joanne, let me just, let's start off with you. Um, How long have you been a caregiver? Um, I've been caring for my dad who has... um the disease for about six years. He was diagnosed in his later uh, <clears throat> 80s, early 90s. Um, he's now 96 years old. Wow. What was the adjustment like when you uh, became a caregiver? Well, um, the adjustment for me personally um, was, you know, leaving my home and my husband to drive. I live on Cape Cod. My Father lives in Dedham, Massachusetts, so it's about a 150-mile round trip um, to bring him to his doctor's appointments, not only his eyes, but other appointment, medical appointments as well, and doing miscellaneous errands. So, um, you know, so when I have to come up for a doctor's appointment, it's it's a day process. It's usually I'm here most of the day, and... Um, you know, so that's a little bit of adjustment on, you know, my time schedule, my time with my husband, and and that kind of thing. And so, you know, in your experience, what's been the hardest part of being a caregiver? I think that you know, when you watch someone lose their independence a little bit, um, you know, and have to give up some of the things that they, you know, truly loved, like. You know, now my father's disease is advanced to the stage where television is hard, and um, he used to be an avid reader, so now he depends on the audiobooks. Um, his handwriting is very limited now, but also, you know, he's 96 years old, so we constantly remind him that he's doing really well for someone of that age. And, um, you know, so I, I think that. It's it's kind of multiple with his eyes and then normal 96-year-old, sure. you know, things that go on with, with someone. But, yeah, um, I, you know, yeah. he's pretty independent and, uh, you know, we're we're truly blessed with, in that regard. That's great. And kind of related to that, what's been the most rewarding part of, um, of, this, of this experience being a caregiver? For me, uh, spending more one-on-one time with my dad, um, getting to know, you know, his reading interests more and, um, you know, so that we can get the right audio books for him. Um, He seems to be a little bit more reminiscent now as he's aged about things that have gone on in his childhood and stories and um, his time in the service. Now, I have a lot of sisters, so, you know, we never asked about his, you know, service career when we were kids, um, not being history buffs, but now he's opening up a little bit about, you know, the places he visited and things that happened in, um, you know, World War II and, and those kinds of things. So, um, you know, just that time and the stories are, 
very valuable to me. <laughs> no, that, that that's wonderful. Some some great uh, some great history to pass down. So, uh, Grace, I want to uh, turn to you for a moment. And first of all, I want to tell us a little bit about the your organization, the National Alliance for Caregiving. I'm happy to. The National Alliance for Caregiving has been around about 23 years, and our main focus is public policy, research, and advocacy. So we work with a network of state and local caregiving coalitions across the U.S. We do work on Capitol Hill with members of Congress, and we also convene the International Alliance of Carer Organizations, which is a global coalition represented by 16 different nations, all of which um, are headed by a nonprofit who's working on caregiving issues in that country. So we're thinking big about what we can do for caregiving and for and for families who are going through what Joanne's going through. Yeah, no, that's great. That that you know that national and global perspective. Like when you when you hear uh, Joanne talk about some of the, some of the challenges, but also some of the the rewards. I mean, how does is that something that you you hear other caregivers uh, around the country, around the world, talk about? Absolutely. I think caregiving is a complicated relationship. You know, one of the things that's driving it, whether we think of that person as a loved one or we have a more complex relationship with them, is that we're really the activities of caring for someone, you know, doing the, the high-touch activities like helping someone get dressed or bathe, you know, instrumental activities like coordinating services, managing finances, and even sometimes medical or nursing tasks, those are really an outward expression of love and affection for another person. And we see globally a recognition that the contribution that people are making to care for their friends and family members needs to be respected and that there are certain rights that caregivers have as their own person. That, you know, The caregiver is a separate person who has their own needs for health, wellness, well-being, career, relationships, and so forth. And so that's one of the things we work on is how do we empower people to be able to care, to be well-prepared to care, but also so that they can have their own life and, and take care of themselves. Yeah, no, those are, those, are, those are great points. And when you think about how uh, policymakers or the media um, you know, portray, under, perceive, or portray caregivers. Are there sort of common misperceptions about caregiving that you think um, uh, we can we can help change? Absolutely. One of the most common is that caregiving is really just something that impacts women who are older or mid-career caring for another relative, and that certainly is sort of the the typical case. But I would say that we see more and more different types of families, different types of people taking on caregiving. You know, the national data that comes from a study we do with AARP roughly every five years found that there's approximately 60% of America's caregivers who are who are women and 40% who are men. And it strikes me that among younger generations, men and women are equally as likely to pick up care, which is wonderful and much needed because many of the folks who are really in the throes of caregiving now often will say to us, you know, I wish my brother would help out with this or I wish other people in my family. And we see those attitudes starting to change with younger generations. The other thing I would say is that we're beginning to recognize that people contribute different types of activities. You know, this is going to sound silly, but I'm a huge nerd. I was watching an X-Men movie, and uh, Wolverine, the X-Men, comes in, and he's 
taking care of his mentor, Professor X. And if you're not a nerd like me, essentially these are superheroes, and Professor X has a neurological condition, but because he's a superhero, every time he has a seizure, there's an earthquake. And so here's this, you know, Wolverine's picking up Professor X out of the wheelchair and transferring him to the bed. And I look at my husband and I say, I can't believe this, but this is a caregiving movie. That's amazing. And um, and I also thought to myself, you know, we're not going to ask Wolverine to raise his hand and say, I'm a caregiver. And I think many people who are selfless enough to take care of someone else may not self-identify. So we have to make sure that those systems are willing to invite that person is, whether it's a doctor asking you, do you need help managing this activity or do you need help to take care of yourself or do you need respite or even your local home and community-based service providers like a senior center or other community-based organizations. Yeah, no, those are great points. And so, Joanne, I was wondering when you know um, when you look back over your time as a caregiver, are there things that kind of lessons you've learned or observations that you've uh, that you've reached about what it what it means to be a caregiver? Well, I think over the years um, that you become more compassionate and empathetic with. Um, your family member or, you know, who your friend or who you're dealing with. Um, in my case, um, I've been truly blessed. We have a large family and all of us help with certain tasks. Now, I might be the medical person, but another sister would be doing the billing and another one the shopping. And, um, you know, I do have a brother and he tries to do the day-to-day needs or, you know, something in the yard or whatever my dad might want done. So um, not one of us is the primary or sole caregiver for my dad. It's kind of a a family effort all the way around. But um, I would think that if you were the sole caregiver, that there'd be many, um, you know, issues and and things, logistics that would need to be worked out and um, you know, I do believe self-care is important, too, because if you can't take care of yourself, then, you you know, it's hard to take care of a, a family member or a friend that needs support as well. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And so what, what would you say to um, to a new caregiver? If you, if you met somebody, you know, on uh, today who was just starting as a caregiver, what type of advice would you pass on to them? Um, well, I, I think that as far as the patient is concerned, um, you know, you want to encourage any amount of independence that they have and make sure safety measures are in place, um, you know, it, and, and, you know, make sure that it doesn't have to be you, but if someone can, you know, uh, do their shopping or, you know, make appointments or whatever, um, I, I don't think that, you know, or it would be very difficult for one person to have to do all of that, and I think any part that you can hand off or um, get support with, you know, is instrumental, and in, in that way you can take care of yourself a little bit too. Yeah, no, I agree. And um, Grace, I want to get back to an interesting point you made um, a few minutes ago about sort of the changing in society of, of ages and genders, or more specifically, Wolverines, as you cited, uh, taking on caregiver roles. Um, can you talk a little bit about gender differences, like when it's let's say you know the, the different combinations when it's a a a woman 
taking care of a man, when it's a man taking care of a woman. Like, so, so are there gender differences and challenges that that come into the the relationship between the caregiver and the care recipient? You know, based off of gender. There are absolutely, and I don't want to generalize here, just because you know, of course, there are people who are LGBT or have varying gender identities, and, and that's a, sort of a different situation as well. But I would say, in general, we know that women tend to do more of those high-touch activities. So they're usually hands-on, um, day-by-day, some often living with the person who uh, needs care, versus men tend to do more of the coordination, running errands, um, managing finances. And I think, you know, Joanne, you put it perfectly, that this is something that we're all doing together and people are taking different pieces of it. And I think for a lot of caregivers, looking and identifying what is it that we need to do and who can take that piece of it is really important. The other thing I would say is there was a really interesting study done out in Washington State by a researcher, Dr. Frances Lewis, and she talked about and looked at breast cancer dyads particularly marriages where the man was taking care of the woman. And one of the things she found was that the men wanted to fix it and the women wanted someone to just listen to them and allow them to really grieve for what they were going through. And that until they really sat down and recognized, hey, this is the disease that's putting the strain on our family. It's not you and me. A lot of people thought, gosh, my spouse is being a real jerk right now and I don't want to talk with them. And so she created an intervention that allows the caregiver to to be a better active listener, to stop trying to fix whatever it is, and to just acknowledge and accept where people are, and to provide for some self-care. You know, caregiver, take care of yourself, and that empowers you to be a better caregiver. And the fascinating thing in the study was that the health of both the person with breast cancer and their husbands got better. So both people not only had better emotional health and a stronger relationship, but they both physically were in better health after they found a way to tackle that. Wow. No, th- thanks so much for, for mentioning that. It's really, it's really interesting. And Joanne, to kind of to Grace's point about you know some of the, the, the relationship challenges and communications, uh, Joanne, in your experience, experience like what's the best way for caregivers to communicate um with um you know the family member or friend that they're that they're helping out like how can you know what's obviously a challenging situation uh go go best well i think you have to talk openly about um concerns and you know like what care might be coming next in terms of um medical care or safety measures around the house you know what what's coming up the line what do we need to do um but also listen very carefully to the patient's concerns um you know this is a scary thing they're going through and you know you, you kind of just need to like Grace was saying just to listen just you know you can't fix it but you can be there um, listening and supporting as best you can. So that would be my yeah, um, thing. You know, there are little, I was just going to say, there are little, you know, safety measures that you make as the person, um, you know, progresses to, you know, um, the little dots on the, you know, microwave or um, painting a stair yellow so they see the, edge of the stair um, through the peripheral vision or, you know, things like that. Just, you know, try to be on top of, you know, anything that you can do to make things a little more yeah. safe. 
for the individual. Now, yeah. And, um, you know, Joanna, no, you and I both uh, come from New England where there's a stereotype of people that are a little stoic and stubborn and proud. So what do you, how do you help somebody who maybe doesn't think they need any help? <clears throat> well, I wouldn't believe them, number one. <laughs> <laughs> One, um, you know, I, I, as I said before, I would uh, definitely encourage their independence, um, but make sure those safety measures are in place, um, you know, uh, such as in the case of my dad, he's 96, but um, and we, he has a pool out in his backyard, a built-in pool, and he loves, you know, over the years he liked to go out and plant flowers and whatever, and, you know, he still wants to go shopping for the flowers, even though that he may not be able to see them as well. He knows exactly which flower he wants and where he wants it planted, and, you know, so we, we encourage that. Um, we've made, you know, safety measures around the pool area so that he will walk not near the, the opening of the pool and and things like that. So, you know, encourage their interests as much as you can. Let them, you know, continue whatever they can. But then, you know, we're always there to kind of help, you know. What do you yeah. need, Dad? Where do you want this planted, Dad? What kind of flower? You know, those kinds of things. Um, you know, and the same with his, his audio books and, and so forth, which kind of books do you want to read and you know those kinds of things so that, that, that that's great and, and um you know good good advice to sort of make it a, a shared a shared experience and you know grace i want to turn to sort of the, um kind of the policy level i know your uh national Alliance for caregiving is is a u.s based organization so you know kind of through that <clears throat> through that prism what what can american employers or governments here in america whether that's local, state, federal, what can the public and private sector do to better support caregiving? Actually, there's a lot that can be done. Um, One of the things I would say relative to employers is we know from the research that there's roughly six out of ten caregivers who are working either part-time or full-time, and the vast majority of those caregivers need some kind of accommodation at work and able to continue to do their job. We hear some people um, that share feedback with us from our grassroots network that they feel like work allows them a chance to get respite from the caregiving situation and to continue to maintain that identity that comes with your career. Now, not everybody feels that way, and certainly there's no right or wrong answer, but one thing that employers can do is to provide some support for caregivers in the workplace. Some of the programs that are most innovative would be, for example, an EAP or an employee assistance program where people can go out and get benefits and assistance with things like geriatric care management, help finding an assisted living facility or other types of community supports, um, help with managing stress. We've also seen companies do affinity groups or social um, Groups, you know, you might have a women's interest group, you might have a LGBT group, you might have a Latino group, and so they'll add a caregiving group so that you can connect with other employees. And in many cases, we're seeing um, the advent of the flex time, telework, those kind of job sharing where you, you shift around the schedule so that you can be more accommodating to caregivers in your midst. The other policy angle, I think, is the the movement momentum we're seeing around paid family and medical leave, 
which would allow people to elect for essentially like an unemployment benefit, and that benefit would then come back to you and replace your salary at about anywhere between 55% or higher and do so anytime you'd qualify for FMLA leave. So it, it already exists in some states, California and New Jersey, were early adopters. But I think that's something that people are starting to say is, like, we really need to be able to help caregivers at work. The other thing I would say is just stressing that caregiving impacts us at all ages. And when we look at elder care in particular, we sometimes forget that people have conditions that are related to vision or teeth or hearing. And there's actually a bill that was in Congress that was called Seniors Have Eyes, Ears, and Teeth. And they talk about how difficult it is to get coverage under the Medicare program for anything related to vision, hearing, and oral health. And I think that's something that a lot of people aren't even aware of, that Medicare may not cover um, some of the necessary uh, services that, that older adults need, and there needs to be more conversation about that, not just with physicians, but also with lawmakers. Yeah. No, those are all great points. We've actually received two questions very similar to the, the topic you just answered, Grace, where, uh, about compensation and, and, and paid leave. Um, so we have two callers that are wondering, how can somebody find out uh, in their community uh, or, or state, like what type of, you know, if there are benefits uh, uh, like that. There's a national advocacy organization that's working on it um, that's called the National Partnership for Women and Families. And that's the group that originally helped to draft the Family and Medical Leave Act. So if you go to their website, which is nationalpartnership.org, and you look under their work section, they have updates on their work section. And there's also updates from a group that's called the National Conference of State Legislatures, and that would be ncsl.org. Both of those websites, I think, can provide great updates. We also have some updates that go out through our weekly newsletter. So you're welcome to go to caregiving.org and sign up for those weekly policy updates. Um, it's not very many not very many states right now. It's primarily California, New Jersey, Rhode Island, New York, D.C., and the state of Washington. So it's an effort that's gaining ground, but it's not widespread. Sometimes employers will actually create their own paid leave program, but that's typically set up differently than the kind that goes through the states. And I just want to turn to, to Joanne for a moment and talk about, you know, I, I understand you you. you drive a great distance to uh, help your father at a number of uh, doctor's appointments. So as a, as a veteran uh, of, of many doctor appointments, any tips uh, for our audience that can make a doctor's appointment go as, as well as it, uh, as it can be? Well, it, you know, it all depends on your doctor's office, I think. You know, sometimes a little creative scheduling um, you know, needs to take place depending on, you know, like okay, my dad's elderly, so maybe at the first appointment after lunch fits in his schedule better or the first one in the morning. Um, you know, maybe uh, cutting down on how many rooms that a person has to be in to accommodate an appointment, um, a little bit of best practices in, in that. Um, when my dad goes for an eye appointment, he might be in three different rooms. 
if it could be cut down to two, that would be fantastic. And I know, you know, that equipment needs to be in one room and so forth, but, um, you know, maybe the person taking the intake and making sure all his medications and so forth are the same, he can be in the same room to get as an injection instead of, you know, bouncing around so many times. Um, For people that are working, um, I think, you know, if a facility could make evening appointments or very early morning appointments so that they don't have to uh, take so much time off from work or, you know, those kinds of things. Um, I know in the case I have a sister suffering from this disease as well, um, she has to leave work and her husband leaves work to to make her appointments. So something like that would be um, make it easier for them uh, as well. So, you, you know, I think just talking with your physician's office, seeing what's best for your, um, you know, your particular person that you're you're there with, um, it maybe things can be figured out a little bit to kind of make it easier for them. Yeah, no, that that's great advice. I think to to sort of speak up to you know ask for ask for you know help or what would work best for for your right. family. You kind of have to I advocate. You know, yeah, what, yeah, what you need, you know. Many of us are often comfortable doing, but I think you're exactly right. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, several times, Joanne, about how important it is to take care of yourself. Um, how do you do it? How do you stay as uh, <laughs> mentally and physically strong as as possible? Because it seems like you, you do quite a bit for your for your family. I was wondering, how do you how do you take care of yourself? It, that's kind of a, a work in progress. <laughs> um, you know, I, I do count on my siblings for support if I need it or, um, you know, if I'm going away for a weekend for my husband, we make sure that, you know, all dad's care is taken care of, you know. Um, personally, I, I like to read or meditate or take a walk. Um, and now that the weather's getting great and I live on, you know, Cape Cod, I will be spending some time at the beach just kind of kind of meditating there, you know, when I can. So those are the kinds of things that I do to kind of take care of me, <laughs> Yeah, no, it's yeah. it's it's very important, and um, uh, you know, and so I just want to turn to to Grace for a moment. Like you know, we, we you've talked about um, so the challenges that caregivers face and some of the the uh, you know changing nature of society. How do you you know kind of from a crystal ball standpoint, Grace? Where do you see caregiving going over the next you know next couple of years or decade or two? Are there are there trends or or um, that that you see like when you when you think about the future of caregiving in America? Yeah, absolutely. I would say the first trend is how do we carve out pathways for caregivers? So one of the conversations we've started is with the Food and Drug Administration to say when you're doing a clinical trial and you're looking at does this medicine work or does this medical device work? that you're also thinking about how does it work when that person has a caregiver who's trying to either use the device, who's trying to manage the medications, and what guardrails should be in place so that the caregiver is well-prepared and so that the person who is the patient, their voice is still being heard. I think we're going to see more and more of these pathways being charted out in different sectors, and colleagues of mine are working on other types of pathways So, for example, AARP has a state law called the CARE Act, and it requires that a hospital notes who the caregiver is in the medical record 
at hospital discharge and provide some type of training to the caregiver so that the handoff between the hospital to the home is more smooth. And that is another way to get at pathways that are actually existing in the real world. My colleague out in California at the Family Caregiver Alliance has started a program called the Atlas of Caregiving, and they look at how technology can help improve coordination of care and the activities of care and make it easier for families to navigate these. So I think more and more we're going to see this recognition that caregivers really are the backbone of our health and social care systems. And in fact, just a couple years ago, Congress passed a new bill that would require an advisory committee on caregiving at the Department of Health and Human Services, and they would come up for a plan for how we're going to tackle some of these issues as we look into the future. That was under the Raise Family Caregivers Act, and at least from what I've heard, my understanding is the advisory committee will actually begin to meet this summer. Well, that's great. And it's interesting what you say about the hospitals. It, that just seems such common sense. It's kind of shocking that it's that you have to add, that, we, that we as a society have to advocate for to to create that. And so, so one more question about the future, uh, Grace. Any new um, technologies? It seems like nowadays there's an app for everything. Are there are there emerging technologies that that can help caregivers and their extended families? Yes and no. I would say there is technology for everything, but the the tricky thing about technology, and this will be familiar to those of you who might be working on project management or other types of apps, is that the the mobile application has to be easier to use than whatever you're currently using now. So if I use Skype to call my grandmother and check in, and I know how to use Skype and she knows how to use Skype, the barrier to entry for a new piece of technology and learning how to use it is pretty high. And I do see a lot of innovators that are saying, well, let's create something specific to caregiving. I would argue, and I think there's research out there that's sort of working through this lens of we need to work with what people already know and meet them where they are because caregiving is a regular part of the human experience. So I think the most promising technological adaptations would be companies like Lyft and Uber who are thinking about how do we make our service disability friendly and friendly to older adults who may need help getting in and out of vehicles, as well as other organizations that are thinking about how do we adapt existing technologies that people use and make them more accessible. So rather than, for example, a necklace that's your personal emergency response system, you might have it connected to your phone. So you're replacing something that you already use with something that works a little bit better. And I think the more that tech can do that, the better it will be. The other thing is just long-distance caregiving. People want to find ways to stay connected. So I think we'll continue to see more telehealth as well as just more opportunities for people to communicate virtually. Yeah, no, that's great. Joanne, um, when you hear about some of the... uh, uh, technologies that, that Grace outlined. Are there things that help you and your family stay stay organized and, and, and coordinated as much as you can? Um, well, I, I think I'm a little old school <laughs> as far as, you know, I use calendars. I do written things. As You know, I, I don't type so much into my phone and, and you know, those kinds of things to keep appointments and, and whatnot. Um, you know, I, my father has had a lot of assisted 
technologies over time. It's it's just that his disease has progressed that he can't no longer, you, you know, utilize these things. He's had, you know, um, different magnifying things and computer things and so forth. But he's kind of lost interest in those. He doesn't, you know, he's not able to see the images as the way he used to. So I think that... Um, you know, in, in my case, we're not really looking so much for um, technologies. His family's, you know, is close, so we're not doing Skyping and, you know, those kinds of things. But I can see how helpful they would be to others, um, you know, certainly. Um, and maybe, you know, my my sister, she's 56, um, dealing with this. As time progresses, these are the kind of the technologies and things that that would probably be very helpful for her. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Yeah. Hey, kind of, um, uh, Joanne, we, we just got a question from uh, Anna from California. I was wondering, like, big picture, if a family is new to uh, low vision disease uh, and they worry about whether their loved one can can live can live alone, um, you know, with some outside help. I mean, do you, how, how would you answer? I mean, do, do you think it's possible uh, for, for people with low vision to live alone? Or I, so I think, I, yeah, I think that's a uh, kind of a personal call there, depending on, you know, all aspects of that person's, you know, physical well-being, if it's just a low vision and they're able to, um, you know, do some independent things. Now, you know, I'm dealing with advanced age here, so it it, it kind of um, creates a little more complications as, as someone ages. Um, but certainly, you know, in, in the case of my sister who, who is, is young and, and dealing with this, she still has, you know, a lot of abilities. Her vision might be off a little bit, but she's still able to drive and work and and do many things. So I think it's the progression of the disease and where you are in it would probably dictate the type of um, assistance one might need. Yeah, no, no certainly appreciate that. Um, so to our uh, to our listeners, we will um, conclude this conversation pretty soon because, as you can hear, Joanne. Uh, and, and others have, you know, we understand how busy caregivers are and we want to, to respect their time. But so a number of topics came up today uh, where Bright Focus has materials on our website, brightfocus.org. Uh, Grace mentioned clinical trials, and we have a, a, a free publication called Clinical Trials, Your Questions Answered, and that's that's available at our website. Uh, we talk with Joanne about question, about how to make an eye doctor visit go as well as possible, and we have a nice kind of front and back card that you can take with you to an eye uh, an eye appointment, and it's called Top Five Questions to Ask Your Eye Doctor, and it mentions you know important things to to bring with you. So, and over the over the next maybe about week to two weeks, we'll be putting together a written transcript of the call and also an, an audio file, and um, be glad to to share that with you. Our next chat will be July 24th, and it's called Living Your Best Life with AMD. It's going to continue a lot of the topics that Joanne and Grace mentioned today about um, how to have a a safe uh, safe, uh, and healthy and independent lifestyle uh, while while with low vision. And uh, again, that's going to be July 24th. 
So, uh, Joanne and Grace, I just want to thank the two of you so much um, for for your uh, for your time and your your really helpful suggestions and your and your your candor about the the challenges and and also the the opportunities for from uh, for caregiving. So, uh, Joanne or Grace, any any uh, last words for our audience before we conclude today? I would just say you're not alone, and we appreciate the work that you're doing. I mean. You know, I, I think about how many millions of Americans. It's estimated there's as many as 44 million Americans who are providing care at the value of $470 billion a year. And so the things that you do day to day that may seem small have a huge impact on our society. And I would just thank you for what you're doing. I, we appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, Joanne, any uh, final and words? I would, for our, our I would just reiterate everything that Grace just said and um, absolutely try to take yourself uh, care of yourself throughout the process. That, that, that's certainly great advice. So on behalf of the Bright Focus Foundation, uh, special thanks to, to Joanne Dillon and, and Grace Whiting, and, and, and most of all, thank you for, for joining us today. We'll talk with you soon. Thanks. The information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.